So glad you guys are here. It's good to have a few more bodies in the room. We can all help each other keep warm on a day like today. So thankful that you guys are here. A couple announcements before we uh, kick off this morning. Um, We are in need of some more people that are excited about helping to disciple kids. And so that is reflected in what we call our next generation ministry. And so typically the commitment is basically about like once a month. If we can get all the volunteers that we need, it'll be about a once a month commitment. So it's not too intense, but it's a privilege to be able to continue to deepen um, our love for Jesus as a whole family. And so if you'd be willing to do that or interested to hear more, um, just go to the sign-up tab on the website or talk to uh, James Davenport the, right here, the guy talking on the mic here. Um, he's our elder over Next Generation stuff. So please go talk to him. Um, we'd love to hear from you if you're interested in that. Uh, let's review where we've been, though. So we're, we've been in the book of Exodus, and we're taking a pause. Typically, we do this around the new year. And just kind of focus on what we call spiritual disciplines. Another way to say that would just be the normal means of being a Christian to help you grow, to help you maintain health. Like one of the normal means of being a human being is to eat and to sleep and to exercise, right? If you do those three things, it's probably a good chance that you're going to be trending in the direction of health. And same spiritually. There's things that we should be doing so that we can be trending in the, in the direction of spiritual health. And so two weeks ago, Michael preached a great message on the power of God's Word and why that's so important in our life. If you missed it, check it, check it out on the website or sign up for the podcast. Uh, last week, Scott preached a great message on prayer, the power of prayer, why it's a necessity in our life for us to be spiritually healthy. And then today we're going to do one that's maybe not as well known, but I think might be just as vital. And it's being people that are generous. Generosity as a lifestyle, as a reflection of our identity, okay? So if you have a Bible, open it to 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you might have a smartphone. Just open up your browser, type into Google 1 Timothy chapter 6, okay? And we're going to be starting in verse 6, and Kylie's going to come and read for us. Through 10 and 17 through 19. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is God's word. Thank you, Kylie. Let's uh, pray together. Father, we need your help. Pray that we would have soft hearts towards your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that you've given us this gift of knowing you and knowing how you define the blessed life. Lord, thank you so much for it. 
may we come with hearts ready to receive. Um, may we not stand over the text in judgment of it, but may we be under the text such that we can receive from it, Lord. And so open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's do a thought experiment real quick, real simple. Think of somebody right now in your life that you would describe as generous. Someone who's not stingy. Someone who's not greedy. Someone who's just generous. Who's that person? I would be willing to bet that in most cases, you can come up and talk to me after the service if you want to correct me, but I would be willing to bet in most cases the, peop- the person that you're thinking of who is habitually, normally, regularly generous would also be, generally speaking, probably a happy person. Is that true? Why do you think that is? Well, I think we're going to see why it is in our Bible this morning, but I think generally speaking, God has wired into our humanity this fact. Generosity leads to happiness. Generosity leads to happiness. Think about it like this, real simple. God is the most happy being in all the universe, and he's also the most generous. So maybe there's a connection there for us that God wants to show us today in his word. The point is this, generosity leads to happiness, blessing, satisfaction, whatever word in that, you know, whatever synonym you want to come up with. Those things come from generosity, but the opposite is also true. Greed, stinginess, tight-fistedness, being a tightwad, all this leads to misery. Misery. And that's what we're going to see in our text for today. So let's take a look. So let's set the context here a little bit. The book is 1 Timothy, and Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy was an ancient uh, pastor, church planter, okay? And he'd been invested by Paul, and Paul is called to just make sure that all these different churches that he's involved in, helping raising up, raising up leaders um, and, and, and more church planters, just how to be healthy. And Paul writes First and Second Timothy to, to Timothy just to help him be healthy and train others to be healthy spiritually, and where we are in 1 Timothy 6, he's got false teaching on the mind, okay? See, in addition to the, the true teaching that Timothy's given, there's all these guys coming around him that speak things that are lies. And Paul knows this, Timothy knows this, and Paul writes to Timothy and says, hey, there's false teaching, don't buy it, don't give in to it, it's false, okay? And one of the things that these false teachers were all about is money, okay? Let's take a look here. Look at the uh, end of verse 2. 1 Timothy 6, starting in end of verse 2. Paul, writing to Timothy, says this, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, like a false teaching, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. And constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. It's false. It's false teaching. And here's the kicker. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So these false teachers are thinking, if we just kind of tell people what they want to hear, they're going to pay us some money. 
So we'll stir it up to whatever they're willing to, to pay us for. It doesn't really matter. We don't care about the truth. We care about money. Godliness is a means of gain. So we're going to have this veneer of godliness, but really we don't care about godliness. We care about money. So I'll do anything I, I, I can to get some money. That's what these false teachers were, were all about. Thinking that godliness is a means of gain. But then it's like Paul says, since we're on the topic of the word gain there, let's talk about gain. Let me tell you about gain, Timothy, is what Paul says. And here's what I want you to know. It's found at the beginning of verse 6, and it's this. Godliness with contentment is great gain. See it there, verse 6? Godliness with, with contentment is great gain. So it's, the, the words are intentional. It's not small gain. It's not medium-sized gain. It's not good gain. It's great gain. So let's, let's define our terms here a little bit so we can know what this great gain is and how Paul wants us to go about it, how the Lord wants us to go about pursuing it. How do we get this great gain? Well, it's godliness. What's godliness? It's, it's staying in lockstep with the Spirit. It's staying in lockstep with God as, re, as he's revealed himself in his word, reflecting the values of God in our life. We're being godly to the degree that we're doing that. And Paul is saying if we have that with or plus in addition to contentment, godliness with contentment, well, what's contentment? Well, being content, right? What does that mean? Um, well, the opposite might be this. Always living in that vicious cycle of if only. You know what that's like? If only then. If only then. If only I had blank, then I'd be happy. If only I had a bit more in the savings account, then I could rest and be secure. If I only had money for a nicer vacation, then I would be happy. If only I had a few more investments in the portfolio, just a couple more, then I know I'll be able to calm down and everything will be fine. See, that's the opposite of contentment. The vicious cycle of if and only. Or if only then. And Paul is saying, no, 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 it's not that. It's godliness with contentment. It's, it's staying in lock spirit, uh, lockstep with God and his spirit. And having, in addition to that, a, a, a settled sense of enough is enough. I can be content with this. I'm going to be content. He's saying that's how you get great gain. Isn't it awesome that God will tell you how to live a life that can have great gain? That's not a mystery. It's right here. Verse 6. You want to have a life that's great gain? It's godliness with contentment. See, these false teachers, he's saying, they don't know what the heck they're talking about. But Paul's saying, I do. This is the vision of a life that's blessed, that's satisfied, that's beautiful. This is it. All right, so Paul, that's a, that's a bold claim. Can you give some evidence to back that up? Well, he's glad we asked, all right? You want to know why pursuing godliness with contentment is a pathway of happiness? Because, verse 7, is true. Because, or for, here's his rationale. We brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. For we brought nothing into the world, and we, can take nothing, and we cannot take anything out of the world. So if you're constantly clamoring after things of this world, you're going to end up deeply disappointed. Why? Because verse 7, they don't last. Stuff doesn't last, does it? 
Why would we put our hope in something that's going to make you happy for an instant, but then be gone in about the same instant that you were happy of it in? So all of us can relate to this, right? You get some new car, you get some new house, and it's just like, oh my gosh, this is so awesome. And then it just kind of wears off. Like, I, my, my, my nasty old 20-year-old black pickup truck just gave up the ghost recently, and I got a new vehicle. And it's an upgrade, all right? And man, I, I sat down on that thing for the first time, and it was like, oh my word. Because I've always had junkers. You know, I'm well, almost 42 years old. I've never driven like a car that wasn't a junk, like a beater with a heater, you know? Um, and, uh, and my wife has the minivan, so, and I'm just like suffering over here with this pickup truck. And uh, so I got a new vehicle, and it's like, wow, the first week I was like, I just want to drive somewhere, right? It's got a nice stereo in it, and I can plug in my phone, and we can fit the kids in there, and all the kids are like, oh, dad's got a new car, let's go for a road trip. And now it's, you know, been a month, and it's like, meh. So it's, it's cool. I remember poignantly the, the first time I ever experienced Wi-Fi technology blew my mind, right? You mean I can sit in a comfy chair in my house, no wires plugged in, and invisibly just connected to the internet, and I can walk around the house? I was just like, this is so amazing, Right? The joy of a Wi-Fi connection. And, and where am I today, 12 years later? Am I blown away by Wi-Fi connections? No, I got a deep sense of entitlement about Wi-Fi connections. And it better be fast, right? This airport, airport doesn't have free Wi-Fi? What the heck? Right? I'm not impressed by that anymore. Because zero joy in that technology. See, if I expected this form of technology to make me happy, that's a deeply, deeply disappointing and depressing pursuit because it's gone like this. It's just a matter of time. And that's Paul's point. All the stuff that we experience and clamor after, it's temporal. You didn't have it when you came into the world. You're not going to be holding it when you leave. See, our experience of things is so fleeting. It only lasts a lifetime. And the Bible says our lifetime is like a mist. It's here today, gone tomorrow. So if your pursuit of joy, happiness, satisfaction is in stuff, a paycheck, a house, all the stuff that you can buy with your money, that's really what you're pursuing. Ask yourself right now, how much joy am I really expecting out of those things? Man, if if there's a lot of joy that you expect to come out of that stuff, or you're just on that hamster wheel of like, well, it's worn off, so I better go back to the shopping mall. Well, that buzz wore off. I got to go get a new phone. Buzz wore off. Got to go get a new car. Buzz wore, buzz wore off. I got to increase my paycheck. And that's exhausting and it's depressing. And the Lord wants to spare us from that. That's, you weren't created for this. You weren't created for the hamster wheel. More, more, more. Never content. Never content. And man, I'm just getting tired. We all know what that's like. Right? It doesn't last. So Paul's exhortation is, you can't hold this stuff, but there's something better you can hold. It's godliness with contentment. That's way more powerful. It has nothing to do with the hamster wheel of discontent. 
More, 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 more. He's saying, hold that. Hold verse 6. Memorize verse 6. Hold on to verse 6. It's possible. Look at what he says next. It's actually possible. Americans, listen, it's possible. We, we are the most discontent people on the face of the earth. And the Bible says, though, even us, it's possible. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Not might be content. Not it's theoretically possible for you to be content. No, you can be content. If we have food and clothing, with these we can be content. You can have contentment in simple things. It happens all the time around the world. The world says, no way. And God says, yes way. What does it say? If you have food, if you're not starving to death, you can be content. If you have clothes, you're not freezing to death on a day like today, you can be content. We can be content. It's possible. There's, there's a, a poignant example of this that we hear about oftentimes if you've talked to someone who's been on a mission trip or just been, traveled the world to a very poor country and interacted with, with locals there, especially kids. So, like, for me, uh, I had the opportunity on, to go on a vision trip, our first trip to Ecuador, and we hung out in, like, the deep Ecuadorian rainforest. So, like, just picture, whenever you hear rainforest or whatever you've seen on National Geographic or Planet Earth or whatever, and whatever you imagine, that's what this is. Like, deep, thick, oppressively humid, green everywhere, you know, just trees everywhere, mosquitoes that could, like, pick you up and carry you somewhere else. I mean, like, this is the legit deep jungle, Okay. And so we got to go down there and meet with some people that were part of this village that were connected to the, um, our relationships there in Ecuador. And we just got to meet them and hang out with them, spend some time with them, just kind of building relationships. And uh, these people uh, were very poor. They lived in houses that they built with their hands out of you know, raw material from right there in the jungle. It's just exactly what you would have imagined, right? Thatch roofs and that whole deal. And man, but what... What struck me is what I, I'd heard from people going on mission trips all the time. You, you hang out with these kids in this village or wherever you are. For us, it's this Ecuadorian little village. And these kids don't, you know, they have clothes. They're, they're not starving to death, but they definitely don't have much. They've got very simple things in life. And these kids are happy. Just happy. You don't get the sense that they're walking around in depression like just clamoring for more and just feeling this massive void because I don't have the 45 toys that I was wanting for and whatever. A lot of you have experienced that. It is, it is humanly possible to be content with simple things. It happens all the time in our world. And if we're not content, if we notice in our hearts that constant longing to get back on the hamster wheel of discontent more, 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 where you're just running and you never arrive, maybe it's time to ask some really deep heart questions about what are we actually looking to to make us happy? What are we expecting of this stuff to do in our lives, and what are we expecting the emotions that I'm going to have long term? Can this stuff that I'm trusting in really deliver what I want it to deliver? 
I've been alive almost 42 years, and it seems like it never delivers. So why would I continue? If it's been 42 years of me looking to something to make me happy, and it still doesn't happen, man, if God gives me another 42 years, why would I continue on that path? Paul just keeps going. He says, let me give you a few other reasons why godliness with contentment is great gain. And, and he has a warning now. He has a warning. He's like, I gave you the positive in verse 6. I just gave you the promise. It's great gain, godliness with contentment. But here's why the opposite is really bad. Verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's a heavy verse. Let's slow down and really pay attention to these words. What does it say? Those who desire to be rich. It doesn't say those who are rich. That's a very important distinction, okay? So being rich is not the issue. This, th- this text might be written for those who are poor, who are idolatrously fixated on being rich. This text might be written to those who are already rich and just are never content and want to be more rich. More, 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 more. I desire to be more than I am. The key word is desire. They want, they lust after. They're never content. Fixate on And this is a form of striving, striving to be richer than they already are. And here's the problem. Here's what happens. This is why this verse is so scary. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, plural, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. See the repetition here of the word desire right at the beginning and then there on the end of the third line? Those who desire leads to harmful desires. So the desire for more and more and more money, there's a connection between that and where that comes, or where, where that leads down the road, more desires, plural, that are really harmful. See that? And we see this tragically happen all the time. You, you may have experienced this in a relationship in your life, or maybe you know this firsthand. Imagine someone who's um, just desiring to be rich, verse 9 style. Just, I want to be rich, I want to be rich. That's all I'm living for. And I'm willing to do anything to get it. So where does that lead? It leads to other desires, plural. So the desire to be richer and richer and richer might lead you to become a workaholic. Work more, get more. And a workaholic As a workaholic, that leads you to desire your work over your family. And then this leads to a desire to divorce your wife because she's so unhappy all the time because you're never around. And you're sick of her being unhappy. It's like, forget this. I'm just going to get a divorce. So you desire divorce. And this leads to a desire to cut yourself off from your kids after the divorce because you're so ashamed of putting your work over your family, but you just can't seem to stop. See how that verse 9, that first desire, is kind of the fountainhead, and downstream there's all these other harmful desires. That's what Paul's saying. This is why godliness with contentment is great gain. 
Because that picture that I just articulated is great loss. Worshiping money is going to lead you downstream great loss. That's the irony here. You think you're going to get money and they make you happy. It's actually going to give you losing as God defines it. It's kind of like the, 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 the... the desire for riches is the center of a bomb. Sometimes you can go to where a bomb has landed, and you can see, if it's dropped, you can see exactly where it landed, and then out from there is radiating out all of this chaos, right? And that's what Paul's saying. The desire to be rich is the center, but out from there, there's going to be a broken building here, and some dead people over here, and it's going to be complete carnage over here. That's what he's saying. Or here's another metaphor, verse 10. Same idea, different metaphor. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So, so what does that mean? A root, like a tree. The love of money is like the roots under a big tree, right? Deep roots. No roots, no tree. But up from the roots, which is the foundation of that tree, come the fruit of the tree that sits on the branches, Right? And Paul's just saying, if you love money, that's going to be the foundation of from there grows the tree and out on the branches is all kinds of evils. Again, plural. Harmful desires and now all different branches of evil. That's what Paul's saying. And here's the most staggering thing that should sober us up really quick. He continues, he says, it is through this craving you guys know what a craving is? You guys doing the, the like 2018 January diet, right? Everybody's doing it. You go to Costco, they got all the health food out because they know it. That's what we do in January, right? You're going to be buying some healthy stuff. And when you eat that healthy stuff, you're craving those desserts, right? I'm with you. Cravings run deep. That's part of who we are as human beings. And Paul's saying it's through this craving, feel that, you know, that, that visceral craving. It's through this craving that something happens. That some, how scary is this, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. He's not saying this is theoretical. He's saying it happens. Some have wandered away. So don't think that you're immune to this, that any of us are immune to this. This is real. One of the branches that can grow out of this desire from the roots on this tree of your life, if you worship money and and just desire money over and over and over again and be richer and richer and richer and stay on that hamster wheel over and over again, is a desire to leave Jesus behind. To say to Jesus, I'd rather have money than you. It's possible. And it happens. And talk about ruin and destruction. All right, so Paul, we get it. He's bringing the heavy warnings, right? He started with a great promise, verse 6. It's like, but if you don't believe me, this is probably what's going to happen. Just want to warn you. And so it's like, Paul, okay, help us out here. You've said that this is intense and I need to be on guard, right? How am I supposed to be on guard? How can I battle these desires, especially in this culture that we live in that lives and breathes consumerism? 
Like, it's just the water we swim in. If you go home and watch football today, you're going to be bombarded with commercials. What are commercials? Buy this and you'll get happy. And we're just numb to it because it's just how we live, right? But we're being just bombarded with satanic propaganda. Now, you probably don't think about commercials that way, but according to this verse, that's how it can function. Bombarded constantly with lies from the devil that if you have more stuff, you'll be more happy. It's a lie. So, Paul, how are we supposed to be on guard here? How can I prevent all, this, all these warnings from, from taking place in my life? Well, Paul anticipates that we might feel this way, that Timothy might feel this way. And so starting in verse 17, he breaks it down for us. Let's look at what he says. So he addresses the rich. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on what? But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So let's, let's unpack this. Verse 17, what's it say? As for the rich in this present age. So let's, let's define who's rich. Well, based on the world standards, if you own a car, if you've been to college, maybe if you've been to high school, if you don't have to struggle to find clean water, if you have decent health care, if you own a pair of shoes, if you eat more than one meal a day, by the world standard, you're probably rich. So I don't know everyone in this room. I know a lot of you in this room, so I can confidently say most of us, most of the audience that I'm talking to right now is rich by the world standards, okay? And that's how we're defining it. So we're all rich. So when Paul writes, as for the rich, our ears should perk up. You with me? So what are we supposed to do? Paul, what do you got for us? Charge them not to be haughty, prideful, arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So don't, may we never get prideful. Don't you dare get prideful about your stuff. Why? Because of the next phrase. What does it say? Because it's so uncertain. The wealth we have is so uncertain, right? Look at what it says. The uncertainty of riches. That's just a promise. All this money you have is so uncertain. Ask a guy or a gal who was a, a building contractor pre-2008. How was it going? It was going great. What happened in 2008? It was rough. Really rough. If you're a building contractor, you lost a lot of money. Riches is uncertain. See if you can find someone probably 90, 90 years or older. My grandma, she's 97. Find someone like that and ask them about the Great Depression. My grandma was born in 19, uh, let's see, born in 1920. 97, is that right? Yeah. Um, she was born in 1920, so she lived through the Great Depression. And that was a tough time. That, had a, that marked her. Hey, wealth, riches, super uncertain. She felt that. Ask someone who got rich quick and then wasted all their money through the desires of the flesh. They know that riches can be certainly fleeting. So if we can't put our hope in money because it's here today and gone tomorrow, like it says here, so uncertain, what are we supposed to do? Man, thanks, Paul. You told us. It's not going to be the uncertainty of riches. Put your hope in God. 
Don't hope in stuff. Don't hope in riches. What are we supposed to hope in? We're supposed to hope in God, but on God. But is God trustworthy? Heck yes, he is. Look at what it says. He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That's a promise in the text. Why is God better than money? Because he provides. He provides. God provides. If you have any money or security, it's only because God has seen fit to allow this to happen in your life. It's a gift. So don't get prideful. Get thankful. 1 Corinthians uh, 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Everything you have is a gift from the Father of lights. God is a loving Father. Do you know that? Do you see him that way? And any good, loving father will provide. And God is not just good. He's perfect. And he has provided. First in his son, given for our salvation, the pinnacle of generosity. And Romans 8.32 says, if he's given given us his son, how will he not, along with him, graciously give us all things? Or like it says here, everything that we need. Our trust has to be in him. And he is trustworthy. So what else? Verse 18. What are, what, what are rich people supposed to do? Or we're we supposed to not hope in the uncertainty of riches. Hope in God. He's trustworthy. He provides. What else? Well, verse 18 says, they are to do good. So all of us are to do good, if you're a Christian here today. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So don't focus on your bank account. Focus on your life account. That's what it says, right? What your life looks like is way more important than what your investment portfolio looks like. Looks like God doesn't care about your investment portfolio as much as he cares about what your life looks like. He's saying to rich people, like most of us in this room in Madison, there's better richness than money. What is it? Rich in good works. Go back to 18 there, Taylor. Rich in good works. What does that mean? Love, sacrifice, compassion, generosity, listening. All right, so rich people, we're called to not put our hope in stuff that's uncertain, put our hope in God. We want to pay more attention to our life account than our bank account. We want to be rich in good works. That's way more pleasing in the sight of God than how big your bank account is. What else? Generosity. Generosity. Verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Generosity. See it there in the text? That's what God wants for us. Generosity. It doesn't say, check it out, it doesn't say that rich people are supposed to be poor. It doesn't say that we should all have the same lifestyle. Like, God's not a communist, okay? What does it say? I'm not saying God's a capitalist either, so don't write me emails. What does it say? It says that our focus should be generosity. Generosity. 
So we're not going to do the hamster wheel. We're not going to be lusting after more and more and more and more. But also, we shouldn't have a constant sense of guilt about what we have. Some of you live that way. God doesn't want you to live that way. There's no condemnation in Christ. But if there's no condemnation in Christ, what does that imply for my life? It probably implies that I'm going to want to be generous. I'm going to want to be generous. I'm not going to feel guilty about what God has provided, and I'm not going to seek my joy and stuff. What am I going to do? I'm going to be generous, like the text says. Rich people are called to be generous. That's your focus, rich people. All, all you, y'all sitting here this morning, right? That's our call. Generosity, generosity, generosity. Ready to share is just another way to say that. Your focus should be, man, how can I be a giver? Because my Heavenly Father is such a giver. I see that in the gospel. Man, I'm called to imitate him. How can I be a giver like him? I think this is the number one way to battle the idolatry of money that is so dangerous to our souls and is the air that we breathe in this culture. Generosity. Generosity. See, if you don't think it's dangerous, you're not paying attention and you're not reading your Bible. Jesus talked more and warned more about the, the, the allure and the temptation of money than he did almost any other topic. Just go, real, go home and read the Gospels. He talks about the danger of money all the time. And Paul's doing it here. There's a war for your soul that's taking place right now in spiritual places that you can't even see. And one of the ways that the devil seeks to have you is through the allure of money because it's so powerful. But God's promise in the text, we see it black and white, is that God will provide. Put your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God will provide. That's God's promise. That's God's promise. And Satan, too, has a promise. And Satan's promise is this. No, he won't. He's not going to provide for you. He's holding out on you. And you've got to get yours and hoard it up. Everyone wants to take from you, even God. So you better get after it and look after number one. That's Satan's promise. So we've got God's promise and we've got Satan's promise. We've got competing promises. So by faith this morning, Vine family, which are you going to believe? My contention, based on this text, is that the number one way to battle the lie of the enemy in reference to money is to live a life of generosity. Generosity is an offensive weapon. It puts you on the offense. Generosity helps you crucify the flesh. Generosity helps you battle the lie and say, no, this is a lie, and here's how I know it's a lie. I'm not chained to this money because this money can't save me. I'm not chained to this money because this money is not ultimately going to make me happy. See, you launch a full assault, assault on the devil when you look squarely at your money or bank statement and say to yourself, because I know my father and that he provides, I'm free to be a giver. I'm not chained to this money. I know my father. He will provide. He is my provider. This bank account is not my provider. It's a reflection that he has provided, but I'm not trusting in it. I'm trusting in the one who gives. So we wage the battle of money idolatry and greed through generosity and contentment. And then look at what happens. Verse 19, this is such a glorious promise. You should should be encouraged deeply by verse 19. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. 
Why would you want to pursue something that's just death? When Jesus has said, there's living water found in me. I am life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come to me. Come to me. Obsessing over your bank account is death. Come to me. I'm life. Being tight-fisted is death. Come to me. I'm life. See, verse 19, this is the Lord's investment portfolio. Like, why worry about your 401k when you can have heavenly, earth, uh, eternal portfolio? Like, that's what the Bible says. Store up treasure in heaven. It's way better. All this stuff that we clamor after is gone. Think of however old you are right now. Like, my life, up to, I've said it already, 42 years almost in May, and it's gone so fast. Our life is a mist, and then eternity. So why would, we want, why would we want to invest here when eternity's in view? The new heavens and new earth are forever. So doesn't it make sense to do things God's way? Contentment and generosity seems to be the emphasis here because of what it says, because that's where it leads. It leads to that which is truly life. It's a beautiful promise. Money's not life. I know we say that it makes the world go around, but that's a lie. Jesus is life. Jesus is life. Jesus is life. And, and so together, let's lay hold of him. Together. And let that fuel us to be radically generous, just like our Savior has been so radically generous to save us. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Um, we need your help. Help us to have eyes of faith to see, ears to hear. Um, Lord, may this be who we are. We pray for your help um, so that we can be um, aligned to who you are. Lord, we thank you that you, you've given us your word so that we know, can know um, how to glorify you, make you look good, and pursue our joy in the process. In Jesus' name, amen.